Thank you, Amy, for sharing that. Actually, I was uh, reading this week in 1 Corinthians 13, just to add to what she said, and we're told that love keeps no record of wrongs, and the love of God keeps no record of the sin that we committed back then, because it's no longer a part of us. It has already been forgotten, and we celebrate that. It is a blessing to have each of you with us today, and let me begin by just saying Happy Father's Day, and if you are a dad, Happy Father's Day. If you have a dad, happy Father's Day. If you had a dad, happy Father's Day. As a dad, I've often felt a little bit slighted in comparing the way that we tend to celebrate Mother's Day to the way we celebrate Father's Day. Usually the kids are still at school, and when Mother's Day happens, the kids have made stuff for their parents or for their moms, and then there are the dads. And we just, well, you know, it's, it's a day for dads. Well, moms, this year, we got to meet inside the church for Father's Day, so eat your hearts out. Uh, we, we made out a little bit better this year. Actually, I am just grateful for the moms and the dads who have faithfully answered the call to do whatever it takes to provide for their children. And more than that, especially the moms and dads who are doing whatever it takes to point their children to Jesus Christ. I have yet to find the perfect dad on earth, so I will continue to point my kids to the perfect heavenly father in hopes that they will know him and the way that, in the way that I do. So I say thank you to all of the dads who are doing what God has called you to do. Let me begin by asking you a question, dads and even moms. Have you ever been riding down the road with your kids in the back and had to yell these words, don't make me pull this van over and give y'all whoopings. You know, spare the rod, spoil the child. So whoopings can be a good thing as long as it's not done out of anger. Um, but of course, you never start there. It doesn't start with don't make me pull this car over. You only make a statement like that after the craziness has escalated with no end in sight. Well, what kind of world do we live in? Do you ever think that everyone is just going crazy around you? I posted an image this week on social media that simply said, Jesus doesn't need to take the wheel. He needs to pull over and whip some of y'all with his flip-flop. Of course, I hope he does, and especially after last week, we talked about Ananias, who basically was held accountable by God immediately, and he was killed. But there's no question that our world seems to be going crazy right now. It's either the ever-evolving pandemic, the increased racial tension, or the sudden hatred that we have for police officers across the country. You know, before I do anything else, I want us to take a moment and to pray for our nation. These are crazy times, and the only hope we have is what Jesus Christ can do. So let's pray for a moment. Father, we thank you for your grace that we've already sung about, but we need your intervention today. You tell us in your word that if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven. I will forgive their sins and heal their land. We desperately need this today. We thank you that even in the midst of turmoil, we know that you remain faithful to your people. Make us faithful to you. And where we as a nation have allowed sin to become normal in our lives, any kind of sin, 
we ask that you would forgive it and redirect us so that we may honor you in the way we live. And I pray right now that you would show up and do what seems impossible. I pray that you would bring peace to our land. I pray that you would send revival to our land, causing us not only to fix our eyes on you first, but also to cause us to see our brothers and sisters the way you see them. I also pray for healing upon our land. I pray that you would eliminate this pandemic, that you would give doctors and scientists wisdom as they do their jobs, and that you would remove the reason for our fear. And finally, I pray for our officers today. We have many great officers who choose to serve this community simply because they want to make a difference in the lives of others. I pray that you would weed out the ones that don't belong. But I also pray for a hedge of protection around each of these officers. Bless them and their families as they protect us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, it is easy for us to see the failures of other people. But I don't want to talk about other people today. I want to talk about us. And I may use words that maybe they seem to diminish what we're really talking about here, but I want to be clear on the front end what we're talking about. We're not just talking about mistakes that people made. When I use the word failure today, I am referring to sin. 1 John chapter 3, verse 4 says, Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. And I must understand and accept my failure, my sin. You know, as we get into this discussion today, I want us to use a story that most of us should be somewhat familiar with. We've probably heard it many times in church before. It is the story of David and Bathsheba. To begin with, let's consider who David was. Before we even get into the actual passage we're going to use, he was a man who knew the blessing of God and he cherished his relationship with God. While he was still a youth, he was anointed to be the next king of Israel. That's a pretty big deal. He's a kid. He also experienced incredible victories. 1 Samuel 17, 6, in that passage, David brags about killing both lions and bears. And of course, we all know how David killed Goliath, even while other older and stronger individuals hid in fear. Yes, David knew the blessing of God. And by the time he has his encounter with Bathsheba, he is already a successful king. But I guess it still wasn't enough. In 2 Samuel chapter 11, we see that at the time when kings go off to war, David stays home. Instead, he sends Joab and the rest of his troops out to war. And it is during this time that David ends up in an adulterous physical relationship with Bathsheba, the wife of one of his own soldiers. To cover up for the adultery, David would use deception and even murder. And for a while, it seemed as if David had committed the perfect crime. That is, until God sends the prophet Nathan to David, addressing his sin. That is the backstory of where we're going to be today. So I'm going to invite you, if you want to, to turn to Psalm chapter 51. We're going to look at, well, we're not going to look at all of it. Psalm 51, 
technically verses 1 through 19. We're going to break it up into sections, and uh, I would encourage you to read the rest of it later on. This is a prayer that David offers, and within this prayer, we see the outline not only for today's sermon, but I believe it is also an outline that would apply to us in general today. Look at it with me again, beginning in verse 1. Psalm 51, beginning in verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. You know, a good way to look at this is David is owning his own sin. And I want you to recognize that this is really a prayer for grace. We just sang about his marvelous grace. David recognizes there is nothing he can do to deserve the grace that God would give. He recognizes he has no ground to stand on apart from God's mercy. He is a sinner who has done horrible things. Can you imagine the weight that he carried with him? The weight of knowing that what he had done was something horrible. Many years ago, I had a young lady who came to me. Her name is Isabel, and she just wanted to know how to handle a relationship that she was in. It was with an individual who was Muslim, and she was a Christian. And she wanted to know if she should continue in this relationship or not. I will tell you that the Bible very clearly speaks to this. It says that you should not be unequally yoked. But I wanted her to be able to make that decision. So I was very intentional with her. I said, you came to me, a pastor, to ask that question. That tells me you probably already see a problem with the relationship. What do you think you should do? She said, well, pastor, I don't want to do anything that would jeopardize the Spirit's presence in my life. So I think maybe I should break up with him. I said, I think that you have made the right decision. And then I added, I wish that everyone in the church had that same heart and mentality. It says, I don't want to do anything that might jeopardize the Spirit's presence in my life. I would suggest that David understood what Isabel was saying. This is a man who knew the blessing of God, knew how good God had been to him, knew that God had given him far more than he deserved, had granted him victory after victory after victory. Yet now he wondered if the Spirit would even be with him. So he prays, Lord, have mercy on me. While this offense was not only against God, to David it felt like it was. Consider the fact that David's offense was also against Bathsheba and her husband, even having him killed. But he says, against you, talking to God, against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Perhaps this seems so personal to David because he knew how good God had already been to him. Let me stop and ask you for a moment. Do you know how good God has been to you? I'm not saying that your life is perfect. 
I'm not saying that everything has happened to you the way that you would have planned. But God has been very good to you. Dads, consider all the mistakes and the failures that you have experienced throughout the years. Consider all the hardship. Isn't it a miracle that God would bless you with the family that you have today? Come to think of it, isn't it amazing that God would give you anything? Because all of us have fallen short. But it's not always our wrongdoings. I spoke with an individual this week who experienced little in the way of love and guidance from his parents. Yet now he is serving the Lord faithfully. I spoke with another who spent years in the military trained to do very ugly things, yet he is now seeking Christ above everything else. I spoke with another who was a drug addict, an adulterer, whatever else you want to add. There were a lot of things. Yet today, God is blessing him far beyond what he deserves. You see, David is correct when he says that God is right and justified in his judgment. If David got what he deserved, it would not be pretty. That is why he begins with this cry for mercy. You see, David is not denying what he did. He's not trying to hide it anymore. There was a time that he did. And I would imagine that for many of us, we have tried to hide who we were. He is owning it, which sounds nice, but it also comes with consequences. I need to understand and accept my consequences that accompany my sin. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, it's a very familiar verse, just the first part of it. He says, the wages of sin is death. That means that the consequence for my sin, the sins that I've committed, is death. It's what I deserve, but it's also what you deserve. According to Psalm 51, verse 5, David admits that he was sinful at birth, sinful from the time that his mother conceived him. In other words, he recognizes that we are all born with a sinful nature. In other words, nobody had to teach David to walk in sin. He figured that out on his own, and I would imagine so did the rest of us here. So what that means is that we all deserve the same consequences. You look around you, and there are some people, you look at anything, now that's a good guy. I mean, he deserves blessing. Then you look at other people, and you think, man, he is not a good guy. That's not the kind of person I want to be. He, he should be punished. Well, here's the thing. We all deserve death because all of us have that sinful nature, yet the wage of sin is death. But praise the Lord that we don't always get what we deserve. You see, through Christ, there is forgiveness. And I need to understand and accept my forgiveness, the forgiveness that God alone can grant. Consider the second part of that same verse that I shared with you from Romans 6.23. Paul said, the wages of sin is death, but... I love the word but when it's used this way. But the gift of God is eternal life. So you know what you deserve? Death. But by God's grace and mercy, he gives you the opposite, life. And not just a little bit of life, but an abundant life, one that is overflowing. What an incredible gift God has granted to each of us. But I want to stay here on this point for just a moment. 
we must understand and accept our forgiveness. The issue for many in the church is not over whether God has forgiven us. The moment we confess our sins, he is faithful and he, he is just. He will forgive us of our sins. The question is not whether God can forgive us, but rather the question is whether or not we can forgive ourselves. God has already demonstrated his forgiveness. He paid the price for our sins. He is the one who has already made a way for us to forgive, to be forgiven. The issue so often is whether or not we can forgive ourselves for what we've done. You know, sometimes we can be our worst critics. We're aware of our failures even when other people seem to not be. And we catch ourselves thinking about all the people that we've let down or all the blessings that God has given us. And we wonder, how could I let this happen? But this is where the understanding and accepting my forgiveness comes into play. You see, if God, who is holy and perfect and has higher standards than any human being, if God can forgive you, then who are you to think that you can withhold forgiveness to yourself? Do you get the question? Are you somehow more holy than God? That your standard is set higher than what His is? Absolutely not. Stop kicking yourself for the sin that you have allowed in your life. Instead, confess it to the Lord and turn from it. Allow it to be a stepping stone for your future, not a stumbling block that causes you to be enveloped with shame for the rest of your life. Know that the Holy Spirit is the one who convicts you of your guilt. He is the one who causes you to realize that what you're doing is wrong, but shame and guilt are not the same thing. Shame is that swamp that you get bogged down in, feeling like there is no way out. I can't believe I did that, and I should be miserable. It's what I deserve. Don't let your past failures turn into your own personal pity party, always wondering if God has really forgiven you, since you haven't even forgiven yourself. I shared a scripture with you earlier. It was in our prayer time. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face. And listen to this next phrase, and then turn from their wicked ways. God has the expectation that when you confess to him, when you seek his face, when you come into his presence, that you will be changed. What was in the past stays in the past, and that from this moment forward, you walk as a new creation in him. Listen to the way David prays in Psalm 51 Verse 7 through 12, he says, Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me with, I'm sorry, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. 
He says, wash me. And I love this. Wash me. You do the washing. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. I was reading this week also from the book of Revelation, and I was looking at the letters to the seven churches. There were seven letters to seven different churches, and in one of the letters, he actually tells them, I counsel you. He's told them how ugly and dirty and filthy their lives are because they've allowed sin to come into their lives. He doesn't tell them to clean yourselves up. Instead, what he says is, I counsel you to buy for me gold refined in the fire and white robes to wear. Why not just clean the robes off that you got? Because no matter what you do, you can never make up for the sin that you have committed. You can't make your life clean enough, but praise the Lord that he can. According to the words of David's prayer, wash me and I will be whiter than snow. He has walked in brokenness and regret, feeling like his bones have even been crushed. And he cries out for God to hide his face from David's sin. Can you imagine doing something so horrible and immediately you realize that someone you love and respect is looking over your shoulder? In that moment, you would likely ask them not to look at what you've just done. You're ashamed, you're embarrassed that you would allow this to happen, certainly in front of people that you love and respect. Well, that's where David is here in this passage. He knows that God knows exactly what is taking place, but he also knows that God's forgiveness is the one thing that matters most. It is this forgiveness that introduces us to the hope of restoration. I need, to, I need to understand and accept my restoration. Look at what David prays. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. He says that I, I want my joy back. I, I, I want to be able to be the person that I was before. I want to know that my heart is right with you. I loved waking up in the morning. I didn't have that feeling of regret and shame like I can't believe I did that last night. I'm so crushed by what I've done. Notice that it is within himself because the Holy Spirit dwelling in him convicts him of his sin. The same is true for us. And even beyond that, David recognizes, I need your help. So he says, give me a willing spirit to sustain me, to keep me from going back there. I've often kind of read over that last phrase, to sustain me. What he's actually saying here is, I need a willing spirit from you because I don't want to go back where I've been. This has been rough. I've hated it. It's been something I regret, and I wish it never happened. So, Lord, I need you to give me a willing spirit that says I'm never going back to the place where I've been before. The song that we used to sing in church says, I will never be the same again. I can never return. I've closed the door. Maybe what needs to happen is we do need to close the door ourselves, but what we really need to do is to ask God to give me that willing spirit so that it won't happen again. A man was praying with his pastor at the altar. He prayed a prayer that the pastor had heard many times before. He said, Lord, take the cobwebs out of my life. 
Just as he said this, the pastor interrupted. He said, kill the spider, Lord. You see, far too often we want the cobwebs out of our lives, but the problem is not the cobwebs, but the spider who put those cobwebs in there in the first place. Many of us have asked God to forgive us of our sins, but we have allowed the spider to remain. Kill the spider, Lord. Many times we ask the Lord to forgive, but the source of our temptation in our life remains. We keep the door open. But what we really need to do is to completely leave that sin behind. Lord, give me a willing spirit. And then look at the next verse. David says, Then I will teach transgressors, sinners, your ways, so that sinners will turn back to you. His hope is that perhaps God can use my past failure to help somebody else. When other people sin, when other people fail, allow me to show them the way back. And maybe I can even keep them from going down that path to begin with. Because I've been there. I know how much it stinks. I know how much pain it causes. Allow me to be an example to the people around me. Now that is restoration. When God can take your brokenness and your sin, and he can allow you to become a tool to help other people to not walk in that way, that's the restoration that God offers. You know, as I've worked through this story, my mind goes back to another story of restoration, though. But this one is found in the New Testament. It is a woman who had been caught in adultery, and it's recorded in John 8, 1 through 11. I know if you're looking in your bulletins, it says Acts 8, 1 through 11. I mistakenly put that in there. It should have been John 8, 1 through 11. Great. Now I failed, and now I'll never be able to forgive myself. Joking, just because it goes with the sermon. Sorry. So anyways, Jesus is teaching one day when a crowd of people burst into the scene. The woman has committed adultery. There's no question whether she has. They caught her in the very act. And according to the law, she should be punished. I want you to put yourself in her shoes for a moment. I've heard this story many times. I don't know if I've ever sat in her shoes. Imagine the shame that this woman holds in front of Jesus as this crowd looks at her. Imagine her head hung low unwilling to even make contact with a single person in the room. And then Jesus speaks. They've already said this woman deserves to be killed according to the law. She knows the law. It's not like this is the first time she's heard the law. Jesus speaks. He does not deny the law, but rather he confirms it. But he speaks as one who is not angry. I'm sure is very different from the voice of her accusers. Then he says, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. Again, put yourself in her shoes as she hears those words. Picture almost beginning to ball up, thinking that here it comes. But the truth is, none of her accusers without sin. You know what happens next. Jesus squats down on the ground and he begins to 
draw in the dirt and while one by one the crowd of accusers leave. I've often wondered at what Jesus wrote on the dirt that day and no one really knows for sure. I've often assumed that whatever he wrote it was intended for those accusers, the ones who were there. I've often even assumed maybe he was writing out their sins that they themselves had committed. Maybe even listing the names of people they had committed adultery with, much like this woman. But remember her shame. This woman likely never looked up. But who would have been looking at Jesus as he squatted on the ground? This woman would have been looking at Jesus. Perhaps Jesus wanted her to see him, the one with the highest standards, but with the most grace. Perhaps this was his way of making eye contact with one who was so broken that day. Well, after a few minutes, Jesus returns to his feet. The accusers are all gone. And Jesus utters the words that this woman had longed to hear for so long. You see, she was caught in the act of adultery, but the odds are that there was an adulterous heart that existed long before her single act of sin. And with that came that weight of shame. I can't believe I've allowed myself to become like this. I wonder if God could ever forgive me. In my paraphrase, what Jesus says is, I don't condemn you. Instead, I forgive you. Now go, don't do this again. In essence, he is giving her the chance to start over. But he is also telling her to not put yourself in the same position again. See, if you do, you're just going to find yourself in a place it really mocks the grace that I give to you. Don't keep doing this over and over again. Do you know that God extends the same offer to every one of us? Regardless of our age or our types of sin that we've committed. I know some of us, we've committed big sins. And we say that with air quotes, I guess, because we think they're big. Some of them are little sins. There's no such thing. It's not the wages of big sins is death. It's the wages of sin is death. Which means every one of us has committed sin at some point or another. And if we have all committed sin, that means we all deserve the same consequence. You may not be the best person. You may not have made the best choices. You may carry a great deal of regret and shame. But Jesus invites you to start over. Sandra Bullock won the 2010 Best Actress Academy Award for her portrayal of Lee Ann Tui in the movie The Blind Side. The sensational film chronicles a Christian family who took in a homeless man and gave him the chance to reach his God-given potential. Michael Orr, who would later play for the Baltimore Ravens, not only dodged the hopelessness of his dysfunctional inner-city upbringing but became a first-round pick in the NFL in 2009. At a recent fundraiser, Sean Tui noted that the transformation of his family and Michael all started with two words, 
when they spotted Michael walking along the road on a cold November morning in shorts and a t-shirt. Leanne Tui uttered two words that changed their world. She said, she told Sean, turn around. They turned the car around, put Michael in their warm vehicle, and ultimately adopted him into their family. Those same two words, turn around, can change anyone's life. When we turn around, we change directions, and we begin an exciting new journey. I wonder if there aren't people here today who need to turn around. There are fathers in this room. My hope is that each of you are leading by example already, that you are making your family a priority. I'm not just talking about the amount of work that you do. I'm not just talking about those who uh, put in hours in the office just so we can make ends meet. Thank you for your hard work. I will commend you for that. But that pales in comparison to the responsibility that every dad has, which is to raise your children to know Jesus Christ. It is the greatest priority, the greatest privilege you will ever have. And I want to challenge you as dads, if that is not you, it is time to turn around. If your kids are still alive, you have the opportunity to model for them what it is to be a child of God. You show them in the way that you live your life so that they can walk in a way that honors what they've seen in you. Maybe you've fallen short. Maybe there are some things that you do. Sometimes you get angry. Control yourself really well out in public, but I'm going to tell you, in front of the kids, it's a whole lot easier to let loose and say some things you shouldn't say. Or maybe when you get angry, you become violent. I want you to know that regardless of who you are, you can turn around. You do not have to be the same person you were before. For whom the sun sets free is free indeed. So regardless of what you've done, maybe your offense is something that's taking place outside of the family unit. Maybe there's something you're doing, whether it be drugs or alcohol or a relationship that does not belong. You can turn around. Maybe not on your own. Lord, grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Will you accept God's invitation to turn around, to leave the past behind, and to walk a new path? Moms and dads, if you stay on the old path, where do you think you will lead your kids. I'm going to repeat that question because I think this is really important. If you stay on the old path, one that involves sin, compromise, regret, shame, pain, anger, bitterness, if you stay on the old path, where do you think you will lead your kids. Maybe what you've done is prayed that God would put blinders on your kids. Don't let them see the things that I do. I want to pray different. Lord, give me a willing spirit to sustain me. Keep me holy. Keep me pure so that when my kids look at my life, they will know what it is to be a child of God.
because I've modeled it before them, because I love them more than life itself, and I love you more than life itself, and I want to bring those two together. If that is not where you've been, it is time to turn around. But you're going to need Jesus to make that happen. I would rather turn around and lead my kids to Christ. What will you do with the privilege that you have with your children? Let's pray. Father, as we come before you today, we are grateful for our fathers. We are grateful for those who have loved us, who have modeled before us what it means to be a man. Some of us today haven't had that. Some of us have had fathers that were absent, fathers who didn't do their part. But I pray that your grace would make up for that. But I pray that each one of us would be willing to turn around and do whatever it is that we need to do. Some of us have not led our homes in a godly way. We have not read scripture with our kids. We have not prayed with them. We have not modeled before them how to live a life that honors you. And right now we confess our failures. And we ask for your forgiveness and mercy. From this point forward, Lord, I pray that you would make us the fathers that we need to be. Change our hearts. Change our behaviors. Give us a willing spirit to sustain us. Father, I pray that when our kids look at our lives, they will not just think of the things that we say, but they will know the things that we do. That we live a life that is truly devoted fully to you. I pray for those who today grieve because their fathers are no longer with them. Pray that you would help them to now walk in a way that would honor not only their earthly father, but their heavenly father. Father, I pray that you would use us to shape the next generation. It may be selfish, but at this moment, I pray for my kids. And I pray that you would make them the men and women of God that they need to be, but let it begin in my home. Let it begin with me. Father, I pray that you would be honored in each of us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. It is truly a blessing to have you with us this morning to be able to worship and to celebrate Father's Day. I do want to challenge you and encourage you, if your dad is not here with you in church this morning, if he is alive, before you get done today, at least try to reach out to your father. Make a phone call. Go visit him if he's local. Do whatever you can to express your appreciation for who he is and to let him know that you're praying for him if he's not a believer. Uh, it's a great day for us to simply celebrate our Heavenly Father and what He has done, but also to even pour into those who have been a part of our lives coming up. Thank you for being with us this morning, and go in peace.